Music's playing. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm putting you on the spot here in the cold open. In Podcast 308, you promised something for Podcast 315, and I very publicly wrote it in the notebook. Do you remember what it is? No. (laughs) You promised three-way conference tiebreaker breakdown for Podcast 315. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but we're getting close. We are. We are getting close to three-way tiebreaks. Where are the spots where we might have to suss that out? MIAA comes to mind. MIAA, maybe MWC. Yep, MWC seems reasonable. ECFC could be one. Anything can happen in the ECFC. Could happen in the CCIW. Could happen in the CCIW, although, man, we'll see what happens. I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen this weekend. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 315, 315, or the podcast for October 17th of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com, who has just one 90-minute window to record this podcast in tonight, so we are doing it. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation at D3Football.com. And we just finished week seven. I got to put out a spoiler warning, Pat, for all of our listeners. If you have not watched week seven, we're going to talk about the results. Now it's a good time to press pause, go back, watch 111 games from this weekend, <laughs> and come back to Around the Nation, the podcast. We are going to go in depth on what happened this weekend with full spoilers. Ah. Greg's showing he listens to podcasts. That's awesome. Uh, Of course, you can't go back and watch most of those games. But I did watch uh, a little bit of uh, RPI Hobart, for example, on Sunday. That was fun to go back and see the end of that game. So kudos, if nothing else, to RPI for having an archive of that game. Go back and watch the uh, the final eight minutes of that game. One of the epic games in Division Three football. But frankly, Greg, I mean, to be honest, you almost could have slept through Saturday. There was so much great Division Three football on Friday night, and that was just in two games. It is. We got a mid-season Friday night lights spotlight with two uh, really important games. We had Johns Hopkins and Muhlenberg in the Centennial Conference. We also had Wisconsin Oshkosh going to Wisconsin Whitewater under the lights in a game that we'll talk about that in a minute, but I wasn't the only cat interested in that game, apparently. We will, uh, let's start with the Centennial. That's good, because it's going to take me a minute to come up with a drop that has the sound of 19,000 cats. Yeah, Johns Hopkins, Muhlenberg, we have often had Johns Hopkins games on Friday night. That's always been a lot of fun. And uh, in this case, you know, a game that we've been kind of waiting for. Yeah, the Centennial just came off of their conference-wide bye week. They took advantage of the extra time to put uh, a number of their games on Friday night. Hopkins Muhlenberg has kind of been the the highlight game in the conference for the last number of seasons. Last season, these teams met under really sur- similar circumstances. Muhlenberg, they're carrying a conference loss. Hopkins comes in undefeated. Muhlenberg won that game last season, propelling their run to the centennial title and an automatic bid to the playoffs. Hopkins, they did get in as an at-large team, but that was far from certain. This year, however, Hopkins repelled a really spirited effort from the Mules 
in a 34 to 27 win under the lights at Homewood Field. The Blue Jays, they scored touchdowns on their first five possessions of the game, and that was just enough to hold off the Mules. It got kind of scary down the finish if you're a, a Blue Jays fan. Yeah, Muhlenberg, they're a good team, a good program. They're not going to give up. Their opening drive was dynamite, just right down the field and scored. And then it took them a little while again to get settled in. But they did make it a game in the fourth quarter, and Hopkins had to come up with a big stop in, in the fourth quarter to secure that game. Now we're looking at what's what's left in the centennial now after this game. Hopkins and Susquehanna, they're tied at the top of the conference. They're both 5-0. and They're 6-0 and overall. Everybody else in the conference has two or more losses. So Hopkins and Susquehanna, they're going to play on October 29th, and that game is going to be a de facto centennial championship game. Right. I mean, Ursinus and Muhlenberg aren't mathematically eliminated, but uh, the number of things that would have to happen for either of those teams to uh, get back in the top in not only the standings, but in the uh, head-to-head tiebreakers, it would take a lot of things is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's going to require both Hopkins and Susquehanna to lose twice in the last four weeks. Seems very unlikely for both of them to do that. So that game on October 29th, probably going to decide the automatic bid in the Centennial. And then if either whoever loses that game, if they can get through nine and one, the Centennial has been a conference that the selection committee has liked their runner up as an at-large team. So we'll see how that plays out when we get to week 11. Trap games in between for both as Susquehanna is at McDaniel and Johns Hopkins uh, hosts Gettysburg. Susquehanna, I just keep looking at them every once in a while to make sure I've got them in the right place on my ballot. They beat Gettysburg 41-7. to They beat Dickinson earlier 45-zip. 37-3 over Moravian. The close games are a three-point win against FNM. We talked about that way back in week two. And then, of course, the uh, five-point win against Ursinus. In week five, this is also Susquehanna's last year in the Centennial before they move to join the startup of football in the Landmark Conference in 2023. Yeah, kind of the last ride for Susquehanna. And they've got, of course, Muhlenberg and Hopkins down the stretch. They're two biggest uh, Centennial games. The other game started an hour later. You could watch a good amount of both of them. 18,951 fans at Perkins Stadium. It was, yeah, almost 19,000 fans out there at the Perk to watch Wisconsin Whitewater defeat Wisconsin Oshkosh 17-3. This is really not the best of nights for the Warhawk offense, Evan Lewandowski. He was just 11 for 21 for 156 yards, zero touchdowns. But the Warhawk run game, they did just enough, and the defense was outstanding again as Whitewater is now the lone team without a loss in WIAC play. We'll get to more about that in just a minute. Preston Strasburg, he had the only two touchdowns of the game while Jalen Edmondson went over 100 yards rushing for the Warhawks. With the loss, Oshkosh, they slide to one and two in WIAC play. They're three and three overall. One of those three losses is out of division. There's still an outside chance here maybe for Oshkosh to play into the very fringe of the at-large conversation, but they need to be perfect over the last four weeks. Yeah, can they play actually into the conversation or just take up a spot in the regional rankings and have a positive impact on other teams at large hopes? Probably more likely the latter. We'll see. You know, Region 6 is kind of a weird place for at-large teams this year. It's going to be interesting how the Region 6 uh, advisory committee ranks those teams and how they place teams in an order that enhances ability to be selected. They're going to have to play this win percentage versus 
quality win kind of thing when they rank teams. And um, certainly there are plenty of quality wins, but they're going to sort of grapple with one loss teams with without quality wins and two loss teams that do have strong strengths of schedule and maybe a, a quality win against ranked opponents somewhere. So I just wrote on the page for podcast 316, which is next week, how regional rankings work. So if you're new, our regional rankings done by the uh, Division Three committee, a bunch of football coaches, athletic directors, et cetera, et cetera, in each region, they are not as easily cut and dried as you might think. The playoff picture is not as easily cut and dried as you might think. We'll talk about that coming up next week in more detail. I want to take a moment right now and talk on behalf of everybody here at d3sports.com. Well wishes to Lenny Reich and his family. Lenny is the former sports information director at Mount Union. He used to be sports information director at Lakeland SID at Defiance, and he is currently battling myelofibrosis. You know, he was diagnosed with this back in April. It's a blood cancer that attacks bone marrow. He is, um, he's battling. And uh, man, not the first former SID, even in the Ohio Athletic Conference, uh, to be battling cancer. Not the first SID that we've talked about this season either. Lenny was uh, one of the big supporters of D3Sports.com way, way back in the beginning. Uh, I can't remember if it was when he was at Lakeland or before he went to Lakeland. He took like a, he got in the car and took a huge drive to, maybe it was up to Eau Claire. I don't remember. It was at a time where I did not really know how far I was asking him to drive to go broadcast a basketball playoff game for us. He did that. Uh, When he was the SID at Capitol, he lent us an audio stream. We used that to broadcast for many, many years on CapitalCrusaders.net. He was one of Dave McHugh's first regional reporters on Hoopsville, uh, and he had uh, been a longtime voter in our, I think, at the D3Hoops.com top 25 as well. I've used a lot of past tense verbs with Lenny here in the last 60 seconds, but that is only because, you know, these are things that he did in the past. I want to be sure to talk about Lenny in the present tense. Keep fighting, my man. Uh, Well wishes to you and your family and the Mount Union family as well from everybody at d3sports.com. God damn it. We can't go any further into this podcast without talking about some of the other people who have supported d3sports.com in the more recent history here. And these are the folks who support us using the Patreon service. Patreon is a service which you can use to subscribe to people who create things. Think of it as like a way to pay a small monthly subscription as if this were public radio, right? You know, you've got a very small amount of money a month. I don't have a tote bag for you or anything, but uh, we really appreciate the people who do that. They go to patreon.com slash d3sports and they donate I don't know, $3 a month, $10, $20, up to $50 a month to help keep this thing operating, this entire family of websites, including this podcast. Yeah, our Patreon subscribers, they help fuel all of the d3sports.com family of sites. But during football season, you see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week. Features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, live scoreboard on game day, all made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage that the site provides, please consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you're already a Patreon subscriber. If so, thank you very much. We can't do it without you. But you can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading 
the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. You can do that. And if you want to join this Patreon community of supporters, you go to patreon.com slash d3sports. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, you can go to d3sports.com slash help. So this week, Greg, we had all of our top 25 votes in pretty early. I was able to release the poll sometime around, I think, 4 o'clock Eastern time on a Sunday, which is pretty unusual. And that's because there were not a whole lot of upsets, really just one. The only top 25 upset of the week happened in, of course, where else would it happen? Platteville, where the Pioneers knocked off number 14, River Falls, 21 to 14. This is the second top 15 win for the Pioneers after their win earlier this year over Bethel. But I'm not really sure what to make of the Pioneers and their mixed bag of results. But I do know that this result puts the brakes on River Falls Ascension in a pretty significant way. The Falcons, they now have two losses on the season with games left against Whitewater and Lacrosse. There is no more margin for error for the Falcons. There's no doubt that Caleb Blaha is a tremendous talent at quarterback for River Falls. Blaha threw for 127 yards and ran for 128 yards on 37 carries, but it looks like he's going to need some help if River Falls is going to take that next step up in the WIAC and on into the postseason. That is a lot of carries for a quarterback. I know I talked just last week about the glory days of River Falls football when they ran the wishbone and Adam Cowles, who I mentioned playing quarterback for them, was the guy who was the leading rusher in terms of yards career all time in division three for a quarterback this day and age. That is not what you want your quarterback doing. Not exactly the way that uh, a team like Salisbury or merchant Marine gets a quarterback to have 37 carries. Right. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, the last couple of weeks and, you know, we see really impressive numbers from Blaha, but in the WIAC, you got to have more than just one quarterback running all over the place for the entire game to have sustained success there. Lots of excitement at Platteville on Saturday. Here's how that sounded. Jimmy Casca on the call for UW Platteville Athletics. Fourth down for River Falls. Nine seconds to play in the fourth quarter. Here we go. This is for the ball game as the defense goes to prevent. The Pioneers leading by seven here on homecoming. Back to throw. It's a different quarterback who launches it for the end zone. It's deflected, and it is incomplete. And the Pioneers are going to win on homecoming. Platteville knocks the ball down in the end zone. And UW (laughs) Platteville here on homecoming is going to pick up a 21-14 win over the 14th-ranked River Falls Falcons. Greg, you wrote about Pool C chances in Around the Nation this past week. Do you have any thoughts about how that changed, any of that changed based on the uh, results of this past week's games? Let's see. See, I'm on the spot a little bit earlier than I expected to be here today. Twice. Yeah. Pool C. I mean, I think if if there's any one that took a real big Pool C hit today, it's probably uh, River Falls that we just talked about. I think River Falls maybe could have been in that conversation for a Pool C bid if they got through WIAC play, having only lost to maybe Whitewater or just to Lacrosse. Um, but now, if they're not going to win the WIAC, it's hard to see them go through to the postseason with three in division losses. Elsewhere in Pool C, things stayed largely as we expected them to be. Um, not a lot of, like I said, we didn't see a lot of upsets this week. Olivet was probably not a real viable pool C team if they made it to nine and one, 
but they lost. And so they're going to be, you know, they're off the table there. Alma or Albion, whoever finishes second in the MIA may, may have a chance. But across the board elsewhere, I don't think we saw a whole lot of change in the Pool C picture. A lot of those important games coming up down the road. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. Fast Five in the D3Football.com podcast with Ron Ernst, the head coach at Rippin, the head coach at Undefeated Rippin. A coach, we have been talking all season about your kind of farewell tour. And I have to ask, has anybody given you like a rocking chair or a set of golf clubs <laughs> as you've met on your last turn through the Midwest Conference here? Not yet. No one no one has given me anything, and, and that's okay. Coaches are busy with things going on and uh, whatnot, but uh, no, nothing yet. I, I'm sure there'll be uh, something. Trust me, my children are giving me a hard enough time the way it is with how old I am. My kids, my sons are pr- certainly picking up where coaches uh, are, are leaving off. <laughs> I'd have to think coaches are giving you a lot of extra attention right now. Your team has been uh, so far difficult for people to stop. Well, our, our team has been playing well, uh, Pat. We've had uh, some very fortunate things go our way a little bit. We've been, uh, knock on wood, staying healthy. Uh, we've been able to keep uh, most of our kids in, in playing shape. Uh, our defense is playing very, very well, and our offense is getting things done when they need to get it done. Uh, we'd like to see a little more consistency, but uh, they're getting it done. They really are. Uh, our kids are playing hard, and uh, – I think the big thing is that they're really sticking together. They're uh, uh, supporting each other, and uh, we have a very, very tight-knit team this year. Is part of that, like, you have the opportunity to announce before the season starts that this is going to be your last year? Does that help with team cohesion, I would think? I think it does a little bit. Uh, I've had some kids tell me that, you know, that that this was for me or, you know, we're doing this for you, coach, Uh, a few kids like that. So, I don't. I mean, that's that's great to hear, but for the most part, uh, I think our kids uh, are really excited about how they're playing, and I want this to be about them. Uh, certainly not about me, but uh, our, our we and you always want to send your seniors out on the best note possible. Yeah, and uh, I think our kids are really uh, responding to that. I've thought of you guys for a long time as an option team. Um, but as I look at, you know, what you guys have done over the last, you know, the course of this season, I guess, is it maybe more read option now? You guys are throwing the ball a lot more than I remember you doing it. Well, we actually have changed our scheme. Uh, I, I changed the scheme uh, probably about two, two and a half years ago okay. uh, when we had the COVID year uh, and we were able just to play three games in the spring. That was really kind of the first opportunity we had to in, to install the new offense uh, really struggled in that spring, but we worked out a lot of the kinks. Uh, last year, we uh, had a, a pretty good year offensively. Uh, this year, we're having a very good year. Uh, we went out and recruited uh, some really good kids that fit that kind of style. So, uh, you know, actually the quarterback that we had running the option, we've now moved him to halfback. Running back, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, he's like literally the second in the league in rushing. Just a really, really terrific kid, smart kid, tough kid. Cormac Madigan is, is just really playing well. And uh, it's kind of been a, 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 an easier transition being able to move him to a, to a running back position. I'm also the coordinator of the defense and we changed our defense. Also, we changed our offense to a more spread balanced attack between running and passing defensively. We moved from a three, three to a three, four. I've always been one to try to, you know, 
get ahead of the of the curve a little bit. You know, I'm I'm not opposed to changing things. Always trying to learn, and uh, I think we've got some great coaches on staff. Just some tremendously smart guys, and so the tr- tr- transitions that we've made have been very good, and uh, our kids have taken to it pretty well. So one of the big. Uh, battles in the Midwest Conference for you guys. A checkbox in the W column for you on Saturday with the win at Lake Forest. You guys come right back again and face another one of these contenders this week in the University of Chicago. And then there's Monmouth coming up in a couple of weeks. It seems like the Midwest Conference this year and in the last couple of years have, have a number of teams that are really hotly in contention as opposed to the years when it might have been you know, just St. Norbert and Monmouth, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Uh, right now, I think there are four teams that still have a shot at the conference title. We all have to play each other. So you got you got to play three of those really tough teams. Mm-hmm. We got our first one uh, off the schedule last, uh, yesterday, and we got two more coming up. Uh, we got four games left. Two of them are going to be uh, Chicago and Monmouth, and they're going to be very, very tough. They're, this, this is a very, very tough league, uh, top to bottom. And um, I think whoever comes out of this thing on top is uh, – I think going to have a hopefully a good run and maybe in the playoffs. You know, we'll see what happens. But uh, coaches have recruited well, and uh, teams are really, really playing at a high level at this point. The change on defense has been working well for Ripon. The Red Hawks, they're giving up just under 12 points per game. Offensively, they aren't putting up the kinds of eye-popping point totals that we're seeing from North Central and Aurora. But as coach instead, they're, they're, they're scoring when they need to. And at the end of the day, you just need one more point than the other guys. You're giving up just 12 points a game per contest. It's going to keep the Red Hawks in any game that they play, and that has worked out for them in tough games so far against St. Norbert and Lake Forest. Ripping success here in Ron Ernst's last season makes for a great story, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm always up for great stories. The game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball this week is going to go to Illinois Wesleyan linebacker Frank Roti. We honored this guy on the D3Football.com Team of the Week earlier this season for a play that he made on special teams, but this is for his play as a starter uh, on the defensive side for the Titans. The sophomore came up with a huge defensive play in the fourth quarter at home against North Park, perhaps a game saver as he picked off a pass in IWU territory with about three minutes left in the game and returned it 70 yards for a touchdown. Rody racked up a team-high eight tackles, including a tackle for loss, including a forced fumble. That forced fumble came late in the second quarter, and it allowed the Titans to put another TD on the board, cutting North Park's lead at that point to 27-21. That pick six turned a 35-34 Illinois Wesleyan lead into a 43-34 win against North Park, and the Vikings, who led 34-21 entering the fourth quarter, have still never won at IWU's Tucci Stadium. That is not my stat. It's not Greg's stat, but I credit Greg with the hat tip for uh, pulling that last little nugget out there for me. North Park led in that game 27 to 7 at one point. They had 20 to 7, I think, at the end of the first quarter. Really uh, had Iwu on skates there for a little while. My game ball is going to go to Randolph Macon quarterback Drew Campanelli. The Yellow Jackets made a statement in the ODAC on Saturday with a 44 to 7 win over previously undefeated Bridgewater. Campanelli was a perfect 17 of 17 for 256 yards and three touchdowns in the win. And for his perfect day, throwing the ball in a critical ODAC matchup, Drew Campanelli gets my game ball. And saves us from having to hear a question for the second consecutive week as to why Bridgewater isn't getting any votes in the top 25. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. 
not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. In fact, 19 teams are either 6-0 and or 7-0. and And of that list, I'd guess Alma is the team we've probably talked about the least on this podcast. Uh, but the Scots got to that 6-0 and mark on Saturday by beating Hope 28-26, beating the Dutchman for the first time since 2015. Greg might say that's not my stat. I don't think it's his stat either. But to say it's been a long time since Alma was 6-0 and is putting it mildly. In 1999, Alma started 5-0 and and then played Hope and... Well, it wasn't pretty. Hope won that game 62-7. to In fact, it's the first time since 1994 that Alma started off 6-0. and That and the number of PDF files I had to go through to find this information is my stat. Alma started that season 7-0 and before losing 26-0 at home to Albion and finishing 8-1 and on the season. Oh, I think it was a national champion Albion that season, was it not? There you go, right. They played that game in front of 6,207 fans at Alma back in, I guess that would be November or so of 1994. Wow. This week, North Central ran for 597 yards against Milliken, which is a program record and is also not going to be my stat. Ethan Greenfield rushed 15 times for 174 yards for an 11.6 yards per carry average, which is also not my stat. Ethan Greenfield, by the way, is now averaging 8.7 yards per carry for the season which is crazy and is also not my stat. North Central had two other players in this game with at least eight carries, Joe Sacco and Darius Bird, that also rushed for over 11 yards per carry. North Central having three players average over 11 yards per carry is my stat of the week. It's time to go region by region through these six regions of NCAA Division III football. The NCAA gave these regions numbers instead of names, so we're stuck with numbers. And our first question for the week is, Rather than who's getting it done in the Northeast, who's getting it done in the one? I'm a real wild one. And for me, who's getting it done in the one is the Bantams of Trinity College. That's in Hartford, Connecticut. Jeff Devaney's Bantams got it done on Saturday after coughing up a 21-0 lead. Trinity was up by that margin late in the third quarter before Middlebury came charging back, scoring three consecutive touchdowns to tie it up. But Trinity got the ball back after the Panthers scored that third touchdown with 3.15 to play and went 75 yards in 10 plays for the winning score. That included quarterback Spencer Fetter converting a third and 20 and a third and nine as he threw for 81 yards on that 75-yard drive before running back Colin McCabe ran it in from three yards out for the winning touchdown with a minute eight left. Trinity is 5-0, and but the NESCAC, the New England Small College Athletic Conference, that's that conference in New England, which a bunch of presidents who think they are too high and mighty to participate in something as basic as the D3 football playoffs. So even if... Trinity goes 9-0. They're done after the regular season ends. And that is, for you people who are new to the podcast or new to Division Three. those are all the basics about the NESCAC right there in about a 32-second clip. It's a big win for Trinity. Gordon Mann is excited. I also have to credit Gordon Mann for my, uh, my Region 1 nugget this week as Alvernia got it done in the one this week with a 19-16 win over Widener. Sophomore defensive back Mark Kaufman had two interceptions. One is a pick six to give the Golden Wolves a 13-0 lead in the first half. And the second interception was an interception at the goal line with 28 seconds left to preserve the win. That win snaps a 15-game MAC losing streak for Alvernia dating back to October 12, 2019. You have to credit Gordon for that stat. I have to credit Gordon Mann for lots of things including running more than half of D3Hoops.com between now and the end of December. 
That's generally how it works. Uh, if you are a D3 Hoops fan listening to this, please know that we are working on those preseason top 25 polls. The SIDs at about 55 schools for men's basketball, and I'm not sure how many for women's basketball, are sending us information, which we are supposed to have by the end of the day Tuesday. Don't forget, end of the day Tuesday. Greg, who's feeling blue in the two? Washington and Jefferson is feeling blue in the two after falling at home 12 to seven to Carnegie Mellon, despite not giving up an offensive touchdown. The president's opened the season with an impressive win against John Carroll, the kind of win that really bolsters selection and seating profiles, but now having suffered a second loss in the pack, the presidents are all but eliminated from the pack title chase and any realistic chance at an at-large bid in a deep region two. Man, the pack is making a lot of people feel blue. I think Hobart is probably feeling blue as well, and not just in a blue and orange sort of way or a purple and orange sort of way. I guess it depends on, you know, what the uniforms look like on any given day. Hobart had RPI dead to rights on Saturday. They led 13 to 2 midway through the fourth quarter before the engineers came back, scored twice and won 16-13. No, safety dance is coming up later, guys. Just be uh, patient. And if it was blue and orange or purple and orange, it looked more like red, actually, on the RPI broadcast. As I mentioned, thanks for archiving that broadcast. Hobart falls to 3-3, three and three, even after giving up the two touchdowns in the fourth and the second one of those with 24 seconds left. Hobart still had a shot. They got the ball out to midfield, but a Hail Mary into the wind got knocked down. Not by a defender, mind you, but by the wind. It was caught by Rene Deramola, but it was at the seven-yard line, and time ran out on Hobart. It's a significant win to knock that down from midfield to just the seven. Hmm. Pat, what do you see in the three? What I see in the three is, well, you mentioned Randolph making earlier. Those guys, huge day against Bridgewater. I'm going to give some quick recognition to the Yellow Jackets' big arch rival and say congratulations to Hampton Sydney head coach Marty Favrat, who tied the school record for most career coaching victories on Saturday when the Tigers defeated Averett 37 to 26. Favret now has a career mark of 143 and 84, matching Jay Stokely Fulton, who went 143, 99, and 5 over 25 seasons, spanning 60s, 70s, and early 80s. So that's the guy the field is named after. It's always good to match the guy who uh, has the field named after him. We talk a bit about Conference Unbeaten's Randolph Macon and WNL, and we talked about Bridgewater. We talked about Shenandoah. They're each two and one in the ODAC, but Hampton City's two and one in the ODAC as well. And they can still make some noise. And the fact that Marty Favret has been at Hampton Sydney for 23 years, but was not there when we started this website. These are the things that make me feel old, Greg. What I see in the three is another game involving the SAA ending with a blocked PAT in overtime. Trinity's Mac Douglas had the big PAT block in the Tigers week two win over Wheaton. This week, it was Barry's Elohim Hull who got a hand on center's would-be game-trying this week, it was Barry's Elohim Hole who got a hand on center's would-be game-tying try to secure a 31-30 Barry comeback win at center. Barry scored 21 fourth-quarter points, including a game-tying touchdown with five seconds left in regulation to get the game into the extra session. Not the last crazy finish I think we're going to talk about today. No, probably not. Here's what that blocked extra point in overtime sounded like from the center athletics broadcast. To kick is Taggy. Good snap, good hole, and it is That's blocked. Wow. No good. Barry wins by a final score of 31-30. to 30. 
as the kick is no good and the Vikings storm back from 14 points down and pick up the win. Here. Not archived, mind you. Recorded in real time. We're doing it live. That's what the four by four's for, sons. What the four by four's for. Greg, what's the score in the four? The scores in the HCAC have been largely lopsided since league play began. I don't know if this has happened on purpose or if it's just a wild coincidence, but you can kind of draw a line between the top four teams in the heartland. It's Mount St. Joseph, Franklin, Rose Holman, and Hanover, and the bottom four, Defiance, Anderson, Manchester, and Bluffton. So far, the top four in the league are 3-0. and The bottom four are 0-3. And finally, this week, in the fourth week of conference play, the undefeated teams are going to start to square off against each other in a pair of games that are going to start to clarify the race for the Heartland's automatic bid. When I think about the score in the four this week, I immediately think about the one that Kenyon did not get at the end of the game on Saturday. You remember probably last week in this very space, I believe we talked about Kenyon rallying from 15 points down in the fourth quarter to beat Oberlin and the Owls nearly did that even better before things fell off the rails on Saturday. This was after Worcester went up 35-7 to midway through the second quarter. Kenyon scored four consecutive touchdowns over the next 22 minutes of game action to tie it up at 35. And there's no cheap drives among them. There's no, you know, picking up a loose ball on the 16-yard line. Kenyon went 75, 59, 70, and 72 yards for those four touchdowns. Worcester got back on the board, however, with 526 left as Mateo Renteria threw his fifth touchdown pass of the game and the Scots retook the lead at 42-35. Ryan O'Leary and company eventually got the ball back with just over a minute left, and O'Leary hit on a number of big pass plays to get down to the 27-yard line where he saw Zachary Kim in the front left corner of the end zone for really a quite impressive touchdown catch with 17 seconds left. Kenyon lines up to go for the two-point conversion and the win, but they don't get the snap off in time, resulting in a delay of game and... On top of that, there's an unsportsmanlike conduct call against Kenyon as well. So that pushes this snap back to the 23-yard line. Obviously, two-point conversion going for the win is off the table at that point. It results in a 40-yard extra point attempt, which has the distance and is wide left. Heartbreaking ending to a classic comeback. And the score in the four was Worcester 42, Kenyon 41. Yeah, there was another unsportsmanlike conduct foul on Kenyon after the missed PAT and then one more on Worcester's final snap as they're trying to kneel the game out. You know, it's an emotional game, especially in a game with those kinds of huge swings, but man, the Owls kind of lost control there a little bit. Who's trying to survive in the five? Ooh, indeed. Mumbo number five. Who's trying to survive in the five? I'm going to point out the University of Dubuque, which survived at Co. mainly to a little Mambo number five. Maybe not. But anyway, trailing 14-13, Spartans defense got a key stop of the Cohawks deep in their own territory with under three minutes to play. But instead of forcing Co to punt from its own end zone, well, they never got around to forcing the punt from the own end zone. Co got the ball after recovering a fumble on its own three-yard line, Dubuque going in to try to take the lead. Instead, Co has an opportunity to try to run out the clock, win the game, maybe put some points on the board here with about uh, three minutes left in the game. Uh, They go nowhere on first down and 10 from its own three. They lose a yard on second down and 10. And on third down and 11 from the two, Coe gets called for holding in the end zone. And that's how you win the game. And there's your safety dance. 
Dubuque takes the lead. 15-14 is able to run out the clock, and they win on the road on a safety on holding in the end zone, which is, Greg, I'd like your opinion. Which is the lamer way to get a safety? The offense commits a penalty in the end zone or someone snaps the ball at the back of the end zone? Which one's the lamer safety? Ooh, man, probably penalty in the end zone. You're, I mean, you're in the end zone. You know you can't. You know you can't use your hands there you just i that's you cannot do it especially in that situation interesting that co went to pass there on third down i think maybe you you don't do that that's a good point but i did get a chance to watch that kind of a funky camera angle there at co and difficult to see for sure but i saw a lot of bodies on the ground it's hard hard to believe that that flag comes out unless it was really uh blatant hold I definitely did not learn anything from uh, watching the end of that game over either. As we were talking about this, I thought about one even lamer safety. Do you know where I'm going with this? This is where the kickoff return guy bobbles the ball and decides that he can't kneel it down in the end zone, tries to take it out, and then goes back into the end zone and gets tackled for safety. I have seen that happen. The last time I saw that happen, I think, was... Uh, St. Thomas in the playoffs against St. Scholastica in a game that I think St. Thomas ended up winning 68 to two. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, they overcame adversity there and learned from their mistake, but yeah, that is, that is a difficult one where the players don't know that you can just have that thing, carry you back into the end zone and sit on it. Uh, one of your, one of your favorite rules. I know. Indeed. All right. Who's trying to survive in the five. I've got Concordia, Wisconsin trying to survive in the five. The Falcons moved to 6-1 and one overall following a 28-21 win over St. Norbert on Saturday. Concordia managed just 12 first downs on the day, but they leveraged five St. Norbert turnovers into a win. One of those turnovers was a pick six in the second quarter. The last of those five came on a sack fumble caused by Paul Ball in overtime. Ring up Keith McMillan for an all-name guy there, Paul Ball. That sack fumble by Paul Ball ended the game. Quick glance into the future schedule shows me that Concordia has a good chance to remain with one loss into a week 11 showdown with Aurora likely with the NACC championship on the line. When there's a fumble, what are people generally yelling? Ball. Hey, it's good. It's hard to do that in unison across the video conferencing software from 2000 miles away. What's in the mix in the six? Six feet, six, six feet, six feet, six, six feet. Redlands lost 38 to 28 at Chapman in a lightning delayed stop and start game on Saturday night. But incredibly, incredibly, Pat, the one in five Bulldogs are very much in the mix in the six. So you're telling me there's a chance. Redlands final four games are against Laverne and Pomona Pitzer at the runner. They're at Claremont Mud Scripps and then they're back home against Whittier. Redlands lost fourth quarter leads in non-conference games to the Claremont schools in September. They reverse those results. It wouldn't be the wildest thing we see this year. And Redlands would be Skyac champions. At five and five. Not impossible. I know the folks at Redlands are searching for answers for a whole lot of questions. Some of them uh, related to things that are going on on the field. What's in the mix in the six for me? 66 is in the mix in the six. That's how many years the streak has been going on. If you don't remember about the streak, the streak is this consecutive years of winning seasons that they've put together up at Linfield, up in the Pacific Northwest, in McMinnville, Oregon, about a half hour or so south of Portland. They clinched 
a winning record for the season on Saturday with a 42-21 to win at Pacific, improving to 5-0, 3-0 in Northwest Conference play. So that is the longest active streak. It's the longest streak of any kind, but it's also the longest active streak in any level of college football, Division Three or otherwise. Second longest belongs to some school named Mount Union. You may have heard of them. They've had 42 consecutive winning seasons. It's 66 for Linfield. Congrats to the Wildcats as that streak continues. A couple of coaching things happened this week, right, Greg? Fitchburg, for example, saw its coach step down, rare stepping down in the middle of the season. Yeah, you don't see the midseason resignation or the midseason coaching change very much in Division Three. I think it's an economies of scale kind of thing where priorities are a little bit different at Division Three institutions than maybe you see in Division One in the Power Five and the FBS and that sort of thing. So uh, kind of surprising to see coaching move news here in, in the middle of the season and getting the the coaching carousel page fired up maybe a little a few weeks earlier than we thought. So Scott Sparone steps down as head coach. They had lost five of the six games uh, this season. They'd lost at Bridgewater State 82-0 and at Framingham 47-0 before he resigned. And then Mark Sullivan, the offensive coordinator, took over as head coach and promptly they lost again 42-7 to Plymouth State. So a bit of a struggle right now. At Fitchburg. Then on the more positive side, Corey Filipovich has been the interim head coach at Wilmington, and he got that interim tag removed this week, today, in fact, as we're recording this on Sunday. The Quakers are 3-3 three and three this season, and that's not a great number of wins, right? It's three, but it's still the most they've had in any season since 2008. Also, probably a much-needed vote of confidence for the coach after the Quakers had been shut out two weeks in a row by John Carroll and Marietta, and Wilmington goes to Mount Union next week. I think this is important. I don't want it to sound as if I'm making light of it. You know, you're a guy who's started off 3-1, and one, and then you get blanked twice in a row and you're going to Mount Union. You, you may be thinking, not so sure as to what your long-term prospects are at Wilmington, but I think this is good to solidify that, yeah, this is the guy going forward, and he's got that security for a little while. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of perspective there. I don't know that you expect Wilmington to do very well as currently composed against John Carroll but um, or Mount Union next week. I think we know how that's going to go. But yeah, I think having stability there and knowing that you've got room to, to build and grow your program is important. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. dipping into the mailbag and we have a tweet from jeff seidel at seidel jeff jeff seidel father of a johns hopkins football player but also a sports columnist for the detroit free press he asks taking recent playoff success into account dating back to 2018 how does johns hopkins muhlenberg susquehanna and ursinus compare to the top four in other conferences uh and he chooses to 2018 because some of the 2018 kids are still playing at johns hopkins I mean, first off, from a you know from a high level, before we dig too deep into this, I, I think those four teams are really the reason why we talk about the Centennial Conference with a bit more reverence than we would have before 2018. I mean, those those four teams are pretty good. Yeah, we've seen uh, Johns Hopkins and Muhlenberg both make the national semifinals in that time period. We saw them both give a game to Mount Union in the playoffs last year. One going to overtime last year. They both, you know 
competed well against Mount Union. And yeah, I mean, that's the, that's sort of the, the foundation for the amount of coverage we, we get and the amount of attention we pay to the Centennial Conference or Sinus and Susquehanna. They haven't been in the postseason, but they've, you know, they've been challengers in that conference. And I think you've seen those teams do well as far as how those top four compare to the top four in other conferences. I mean, who, what other conferences have depth that way? I mean, WIAC, obviously, are there four teams that are that good in, in the MIAC? That's our number two ranked conference. I don't know. Maybe uh, the third and fourth teams there would be Gustavus and Concordia or Carlton. I think if you played Gustavus versus uh, Susquehanna or Sinus versus Concordia, I think those would be competitive games. Or Sinus versus Heidelberg as we compare the OAC? Could be. I mean, our Sinus to me is a team that kind of lives a little bit under the radar. We don't, they're, they're kind of a third or fourth choice in the Centennial. We don't see them in big marquee out of conference games. They've sort of popped up when they've knocked off Muhlenberg in the last two seasons. That's sort of where Ursinus pops up on the radar. It gave Hopkins a game this year as well. The Centennial is pretty deep. It is a good league we see not just here at d3football.com, but the regional committee has a lot of respect for that league as well, ranking uh, Hopkins as the top at-large team in Region 2 last year. Region 2, really good second place teams out of that league last year from the Liberty league empire eight. So yeah, I mean, Centennial is, I mean, in the top four, the Centennial is probably, you know, they're in the top three or four conferences, I think. Yeah, I would think so too. As a reminder, like when we're ranking conferences, when Greg is ranking conferences and around the nation, it is everybody. It's not just the top four. And I'm just going to give one more caveat. Of course, this is the last year that those top four are all in the Centennial conference as we will see, as previously mentioned, uh, Susquehanna moving on to play football in the Landmark Conference. But that's also going to open up uh, some opportunities for non-conference play for Ursinus, for example. Uh, Ursinus against Alvernia doesn't move the needle in terms of those kind of measurements nationally, but now they'll have some more opportunities. Looking ahead to games to watch. My game to watch for Saturday is going to be number one, North Central at number 23, Wash U. Wash U getting a little bit of spotlight. A question that uh, we did not answer on this podcast, but came in nonetheless. Red, longtime listener, first time caller. This is from Bob Quillman, IWHoops.com. My question, will Wash U play a competitive game versus North Central on Saturday in St. Louis? He says, I say they absolutely will. I'll hang up and listen. I appreciate listening. That's good. I would be impressed if that were a game to watch. I definitely will be spending some time watching that. Uh, you know, North Central has had a bit of an easy run of it, is able to get a lot of guys some reps and a lot of guys some rest over the course of the last couple of weeks by obliterating Carroll, obliterating Milliken, Washu. Took a little bit of a challenge from Augustana and then ended up winning going away 49 to 28. I think this is the game to watch primarily because of all those Pool C implications. We talked just a few minutes ago about whether there might be a three-way tie in the CCIW, and that basically requires Wash U to win this game. We're not a big fan of having to go to three-way tiebreakers because there's no good three-way tiebreaker in football when everybody only plays each other once. If you're all tied with one loss at the top of the conference, every single conference tiebreaker sucks, but that's the game that I'm going to be watching on Saturday. 
yeah, I think the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of that game are, are the key. If you can, if you can keep North central from running away from you in the first quarter, maybe you've got a chance. Nobody has been able to do that so far. They come out immediately and Ethan Greenfield runs and steamrolls you to the end zone. And then you're cha- you're chasing 20 points before you blink. That guy is a beast. He is very good at football. Staying on theme, my game to watch next week is Chicago at Ripon. The Red Hawks, they're 6-0 for the first time since 1995 by my quick and dirty research. Ron Ernst's fifth season as head coach at Ripon. Having dispatched the defending champion Foresters this week, Ripon is a story well worth following for as long as this magic carpet ride goes. Chicago, they're going to pose a big challenge, of course, with Nicholas D'Ambrose leading a solid maroon Russian game. In addition to tuning in to see if Ripon can keep finding ways to win for Coach Ernst, this result is going to have a big impact on how the Midwest Conference shakes out. I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm just disappointed that there's not a lot of going away presence from opposing coaches for Ron Ernst. You are not getting the idea of what the farewell tour is all about, people. Otherwise, games to keep an eye on this week. Whitewater at Platteville. You've got Gustavus going to St. John's. Barry is at Trinity of Texas. Pacific Lutheran at Linfield. Cortland at Utica. That's the Cortica Jug game for those of you who can't spell Cortica correctly. Wilkes is at Delaware Valley. Randolph making at Shenandoah. Stout at Oshkosh. Albion at Trine. Crown at Finlandia. We're keeping an eye on that game. Merchant Marina Catholic. Chicago at Ripon, previously mentioned, and uh, some other games that we'll talk about in just a bit. You know, I have seen so many people spell Cortica Jug C O R T I C A. And if it was Cortland versus Utica, then it would be the Cortica Jug. But it's not, it's the Cortica Jug. Anyway. That was not my on the spot. wasn't my stat. And my on the spot for you, Greg, is a game I'm going to call HCAC Playback. Okay. I don't know if you're aware, or maybe if you skipped listening to what's the score in the four. The Heartland has four 3-0 teams. And this week, uh, they all play each other. This may be news. Again, if you skipped uh, a couple minutes of the podcast. Franklin is at Rose Holman. Mount St. Joe is at Hanover. And Greg, my question to you is uh, which two teams will be tied for first when the week is over? So we're looking at first, I'm going to go to Franklin and Rose Holman, Franklin. They sort of found their, I mean, all of these teams really struggled in the non-conference portion of the season. Both Franklin and Rose Holman have found their groove a little bit. I am going to pick the homestanding Rose Holman fighting engineers to defeat the Franklin Grizzlies. All right. Rose Holman over Franklin and Mount St. Joseph at Hanover. I just, I like too much what's going on with Josh Taylor and Cornell Beecham jr. Uh, Give me Mount St. Joseph to go down to Hanover and win that game. Really just kind of across the river. Hanover is not too far from Cincinnati. And so here's the playback portion of this game. The HCAC has four 3-0 teams, so what else must they have, right? They have four 0-3 teams. So Bluffton is at Manchester, Anderson is at Defiance, and what I would like you to tell me is which of those two teams will be picking up the first conference win this weekend. All right, so Bluffton at Manchester. I'm going to go with Manchester at home to beat the Bluffton Beavers. Nice-looking, relatively new stadium with a nice big uh, new scoreboard. Absolutely. And then in the final HCAC game of the weekend, I'm going to go with 
bit of an, I'm going to go upset here. Defiance, probably home dogs against Anderson. I'm going to go with Defiance to pick up a win over Anderson. You said you were picking upset here. And then I looked back down at my page and I, I couldn't determine who was supposed to be favored in that game. So I'm glad you clarified. So we've got Manchester over Bluffton and Defiance over Anderson as uh, in HCAC playback. Greg has picked the entire HCAC slate for week eight. That's great. All right, Pat, this week in your on the spot, I am going to have you play a game called West We Can. <laughs> All right. And what I want you to do, Pat, is I want you to tell me how many Wesleyans are going to win this week. There are five Wesleyans playing on Saturday. You've got Wesleyan Prime or Wesleyan Connecticut at Bowdoin. You've got DePauw at Ohio Wesleyan. We've got North Carolina Wesleyan at Maryville. We've got Carthage at Illinois Wesleyan. And we've got Buena Vista at Nebraska Wesleyan. Listen, I know there are people out there who know the difference between which Wesleyans are supposed to be pronounced with the unvoiced S, the S sound, and which ones are supposed to be pronounced with the voiced S, the Z sound. I don't know which ones are which. You have to get me a pronunciation 101 on that, but I can pronounce Buena Vista. Buena Vista! Looking like interesting week for the group called Wesleyans. Of those five, I'm just going to take two. I'm going to take Wesleyan Prime, Wesleyan Connecticut, the fighting Bill Belichick's up on the road at Bowdoin, and I'm going to take Illinois Wesleyan to win at home against Carthage. But uh, I see Buena Vista winning on the road against what I think is its arch rival. These are the two westernmost teams in the ARC at Nebraska Wesleyan. Uh, I definitely see Maryville over the battling bishops of North Carolina Wesleyan, and I see DePauw over Ohio Wesleyan. So I'm taking two out of five Wesleyans to win in week eight. And spot checking our on the spot last week in this space, I challenged Greg to pick which newbie program in Division Three would get closer to winning in week seven, whether that was Hilbert against fellow young college football program Lincoln of California or Keystone, which was traveling to Anna Maria. I thought this would be more of a challenge. I thought it would be close. It really was not. Hilbert played in primetime on Friday night, but really was not ready for primetime, losing to Lincoln 70 to nothing, while Keystone actually won up at Anna Maria, breaking a 16-game losing streak to start their Division Three football career. That is not all that unusual. We used to talk about the four-year trajectory for a brand new program, and often that started with an 0-10 or a couple of 1-9s, and, and then you might have a 6-4 and and possibly a 7-3 and when all those guys are seniors. So uh, congratulations to Greg, who got that right, and to Keystone also for maybe more importantly winning that game. Yeah, congratulations to Keystone getting a big win on the road in ECFC play. They've been scoring some more points, a lot more offense out of that team this year. And so it seemed like a matter of time before uh, they were going to get that first win. Totally randomly, but I'm going to be seeing that team play in week 10 at home against SUNY Maritime. Breaking news. Last week in this space, I asked Pat to pick which Mount would win by a larger margin, Mount Union or Mount St. Joseph. The Purple Raiders defeated Capital by 35 points in a 49 to 14 win, while Mount St. Joseph defeated Anderson by 56 points, 59 to three. Pat picked the correct Mount with Mount St. Joseph. I remember as you were talking that back to me last week, I was regretting my choice, but I stuck with it. And now I'm glad I did. Victorious, both of us victorious, I guess. It's not a competition in 
on the spot. It's a game show with no prizes. In terms of quick hits, this past week, the panel went 0-6 on top 25 upsets. Carnegie Mellon, Bethel, and WashU each won their games. River Falls would have been, of course, the only winnable option this week. In uh, games between unbeaten conference opponents, Ryan, Frank, and Riley all picked correctly with Randolph making over Bridgewater. Greg, you picked Middlebury over Trinity of Connecticut. That was wrong. My pick of Lake Forest over Ripon was wrong, and uh, that was Logan's pick as well. Pat, Ryan, Frank, and Logan, they all correctly picked Alma to be the only team tied with Albion at the top of the MIA standings. Olivet, of course, lost in triple overtime to Trine. Lastly, all of the teams we picked that were safe to look ahead won by many, many scores. No traps among the bunch. Yo, before we go, that game, pretty epic, right? When it got down to the two-point conversion contest in the third overtime, a lot of fun to watch, a lot of fun to watch the Olivet broadcasters realize what was actually happening at that point as well. Yeah, first time, first time in overtime for that crew for a while, maybe a little shaky on on the order of operations there in overtime, but <laughs> exciting game all the way down and triple overtime. Maybe is that our first triple overtime this season? Could I don't be. think so, but there haven't been very many of them. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 315, season 16, episode 15, released on October 17th of 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout this week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alum, someone at your tailgate about the show. Also, you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter. That's using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of this Here Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guest, Ron Ernst. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to the podcast co-founder, Keith McMillan. And thanks to Greg Thomas, our co-host. My co-host, the co-host, the the other guy doing the podcast. Did I catch a this here podcast? I did say this here podcast. We get down to the boilerplate and uh, I'm just looking for some way to spice stuff up mix it up a little bit nice to be back in the home studio this week last week time was all weird we recorded it on saturday night i thought i did some very deft editing to get around the fact that we didn't know what the top 25 was at the time greg didn't even know who was on his ballot yet some of those things ended up on the cutting room floor sometimes we only have a 90 minute span in which to record the podcast and sometimes that span ain't even on sunday I think the director's cut takes even longer to edit. I'm going to be honest. I really want it to be as tight as possible. I want to eliminate as many uhs, as many tongue clicks, as many ums, uh, as many repeated words, as many you knows. The tool that I use is really helpful in that regard, but it still just takes time to go through the entire rundown. I'll give you props for getting through Game Ball and Frank Rohde and not mixing Frank Rohde up with Frank Rossi. 
I, I read that in the rundown. I, that's how I read it. I'm like, why, why are we giving a game ball to Frank Ross? I mean, he did put a lot of miles on this weekend. I saw tweets and highlights from three separate games from that guy this weekend. No grass growing underneath the mayor's feet. There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.